Before we get started this week, I just want to talk to you guys about a few things that are going on. First of all, thank you so much for listening and supporting us for over a year now. This is our 30th episode, and none of that would be possible without you guys, the listeners. I'd like to encourage everyone listening to take a second and subscribe to us wherever you are listening. So whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or SoundCloud, you can just hit that subscribe button on that site. Subscribing helps us move up in the podcast rankings, and it helps you stay up to date with all of our latest episodes by getting them a day before everybody else. I'd also ask that if you're listening on iTunes, you'd consider leaving us a review. This again helps us move up in the rankings, but it can also be a big deciding factor to get someone to check out our podcast. So thank you so much in advance for doing that. Finally, we'll be taking a short break from the podcast before ramping up for the summer. Our next episode will be released on July 2nd, so be sure to subscribe and get that episode before anyone else. If you have any ideas for future guests, I'd love to hear them. Shoot me an email at james at csftw.edu with your guest suggestions, feedback on the show, and anything else you'd like to say. Once again, thank you so much for listening, and I really do mean that. Uh, I, I really, really appreciate you guys listening, because without you, there is no podcast. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Marcus Kiprios from Blackland Distillery. of people now, they will source their alcohol. They will put it in a bottle, and they will put a label on it, and they will sell it. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem I had, and it's probably the school's fault, is that I wanted control over everything. For my vodka in particular, uh, we filter our vodka, which means we have carbon plates, and the point of our vodka is really um, to take as much of the impurities and, and some of that is flavor out of it. You know, we have a long set of rules that people sometimes come in and they don't like, uh, but the point of that is to create an atmosphere. You are listening to Fort Worth Food Stories, brought to you by the Culinary School of Fort Worth. All right, welcome to Fort Worth Food Stories. I'm your host, James Crange. Today I'm joined by Culinary School of Fort Worth graduate and owner of Blackland Distillery, Marcus Kiprios. Marcus, thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, and uh, I was pretty happy with myself for getting your name right first try. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> that is great. Yeah, that's that's not a usual thing on this podcast. <laughs> no. Um, but you guys over at Blackland, you've been open just about two months now, and you're located in the Foundry District in Fort Worth. So how's business going so far? Uh, business is great, uh, especially Friday and Saturdays when people tend to go out and, uh, and drink. Yeah. <laughs> we are a... Uh, we're still a little bit of a secret in Fort Worth, which I, I like, um, uh, because the place is, has an occupancy of 56, uh, so we don't want it uh, overrun. Uh, and just because of the nature of our tasting room, it's a little bit more intimate, it's a little bit more quiet, it's mm-hmm. not for everybody, uh, it's a little bit more sophisticated. Uh, um, it's a... I'm trying to create an experience more than I am some sort of mass bar area, and uh, so far, it's going really well. Yeah, and and I definitely, I think anyone that walks into the bar will will have that experience right away. You'll you'll kind of get it. I mean, you guys are even like playing from a record player, which which was pretty awesome, and I thought that kind of that sophistication kind of came out, and, and we'll get into that more later. Um, I, I kind of want to get some of your background going, but I do have to ask you, do you have any regulars yet in, in your two months of business? 
You know, we we have a lot of repeat customers. Okay. And a lot of people just in the neighborhood uh, because a lot of development has shot up so that they can just walk over. Uh, and so, yes, I've seen a lot of people who just continue to come back, and I think they just appreciate um, the bar program and what we're trying to accomplish there. So you were an attorney before starting this, and, and I know that you attended culinary school about five years ago. Uh, I think I'm right on that. It might, might have been a little bit longer. Uh, but what was the initial desire to start culinary school? What was, what was kind of driving you initially away from being an attorney? Yeah, so I think I graduated in 2011. Um, it wasn't it wasn't uh, away from being an attorney. I actually liked being an attorney. I think I'm one of the few. <laughs> but uh, I had just always really enjoyed food and had a passion for food and wine, and uh, which led me into spirits. But um, I I didn't really understand uh, the fundamentals of cooking, and so I wanted to explore that and. Uh, somehow found my way to the culinary school of Fort Worth and I tell everyone it was the absolutely best decision I I ever made and uh, I think everyone should do it whether they want to be a professional uh, chef uh, or they just want to do it to make better food at home Uh, the fundamentals here is something that everyone should have in their bag moving forward with life you eat three times a day you cook so much you you um, it really should be a part of growing up, even in like uh, middle school and high school. I, it's it's just invaluable to me. Well, I, I should clip that part and run it as a commercial <laughs> for, for the school. Uh, <laughs> thank you for saying all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, you know, you, you did go to culinary school, but you didn't jump right into the culinary field. And you were still an attorney for a number of years until about a year ago um, when you dropped law and, and went into distilling. So Actually, about a year ago, and, and we were uh, kind of discussing this beforehand, um, we could probably do a whole podcast about you, just your TV appearances and, <laughs> right. as an attorney. So right, right. what what made you officially leave that and, and just jump into distilling? Well, it all started here at the culinary school because after that, then I, after I graduated from here, um, then I really started uh, moving towards wine. Um, and... Uh, I spent a good year and a half, close to two years on wine, and then I uh, passed my introductory exam with the Master Court of Sommeliers. Uh, And then after that, for some reason, I started, because I was already in the alcohol arena, I started getting into other uh, alcohol, which led me to spirits, and I started going to a few spirit schools, uh, and I think I went to four. And then that took another two or three years. And then at that point, I decided I wanted to move into um, actually creating spirits. And so I created a business plan at that point, looked for investments, started planning it out, uh, signed a lease. Then it took me another year to actually (laughs) build the building. So um, then I finally opened in March. So it's always been a continuous evolution um, that I think started right here, but you know, I always tell people I'm not opening a Subway, I'm not opening a Chili's. This is uh, manufacturing and producing, and I have a tasting room. It's really two businesses, so it's taken a lot of time to create what we've, you know, created from the ground up. That so that's really fascinating to think about it like that. Of all that time that goes into it, I think. In my mind, I'm thinking, okay, you had this idea, and about a year goes by, and now you're open. I mean, this was this has been eight years in the making. Um, is was there ever any a point, any time, a point where you kind of 
thought maybe you weren't going to make it? Was there any fear about leaving <laughs> a steady job to, to go into a new venture? I was never afraid of leaving a job to try and, you know, put it all on the line and risk that. That was not my concern. Um, I, it was overwhelming in terms of planning um, because we do everything from what's called grain to glass. I think if you look at the alcohol industry, 80 to 90% of people now, they will source their alcohol. They will put it in a bottle, and they will put a label on it, and they will sell it. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem I had, and it's probably the school's fault, is that I wanted control over everything. <laughs> I wanted to um, source my grain, expect my grain, cook my grain. I wanted to have my own yeast. I wanted to be able to distill it and make the cuts like I wanted to make it. And I wanted to barrel everything and I wanted to filter. And I, I mean, really the process is cooking. And so um, I needed control over that. And so uh, to do all of that though, I had to create a manufacturing plant. I had to build a manufacturing plant um, from the ground up. and. That was pretty overwhelming when you sit back and you look at everything that all the equipment um, and all the construction and all the engineering. Uh, yeah, there were times I didn't know uh, if if we were going to finish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bring me through what what are some of the snags you might have hit along the way. Uh, well, uh, I think the compliance part and permitting is really difficult. Uh, I think it was very helpful to me, obviously, to have been an attorney for the last fifteen years, but. Uh, there's a lot of red tape and the city of Fort Worth doesn't really understand what distilleries are Um, and so even though I'm the fifth distillery in Fort Worth uh, it's still a a real unknown and then um, all of my equipment is from Europe so uh, whenever I have an issue on maintenance that's a fascinating process Um, and Amsterdam specifically, right? Yes, yeah, specifically Amsterdam. It's fully automated, state-of-the-art equipment, which you know I I really like because we're making some very clean alcohol, um, and we're doing it in a non-traditional way. Um, but uh, just getting all of the pieces together has been, and and getting everything off the ground has been the most difficult part. So you, you mentioned you're doing it kind of a non-traditional way. What what would be that non-traditional way that you're doing it? Uh, well, what, when I say fully automated, I mean that um, when we make, when, when distillers make what's called the cuts, okay, uh, we, we produce ethanol through distillation. And the first part of the ethanol is things you don't want. They're called the heads. This is acetone. This is methanol. This is things that will give you a headache, things you don't want to drink. Mm-hmm. Um, you probably have drank that in some really cheap alcohol yeah. at some point in your life. <laughs> um, and those are called the heads. You, you want to cut those out of vodka and gin. And, and then the next part that uh, is distilled out is the hearts. This is the pure stuff. This is the stuff you want to drink. The last uh, part that comes out uh, is the tails. And the tails uh, will give you stomach problems. The issue with the tails is, is there's a lot of flavor in that. So the more tails you leave in, uh, the longer it needs to um, sort of mellow out in the barrel over time. Traditionally, distillers will make their cuts by temperature. A lot of them will make it by feel because they have different textures. 
um, or they'll do it on, a, on sort of a time basis where they know, okay, this is about the time when the heads are done and here comes the hearts and the hearts are done and here comes the tails. We do it uh, on a fully automated um, computer system so that we're making our cuts to a thousandth of a degree so we can ensure, A, there are no heads or tails in our alcohol, in, in, in our vodka and our gin. We're getting pure hearts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and B, what we have is a, a much cleaner and more consistent product every time because um, we are only using the pure hearts uh, and we are, we are leaving in just the right amount of tails that we want based on the time we're going to age it for our whiskey. And forgive me here, I'm I'm definitely a uh, a novice in yes, this regard. That was so. a long answer. <laughs> yeah, I know, but but I appreciate that. But maybe what what would be the the simplified way of saying like why would you say that your alcohol then tastes different? Or your vodka tastes different than someone else's, maybe. Well, I think a lot of people leave a little bit of heads and tails in their spirit. Uh, one, for the economics of it. You get mm-hmm. more liquid that way. Two, some people want uh, a little bit uh, flavor, more flavor. Three, they're doing it unintentionally. Um, for, for, uh, for my vodka in particular, uh, we filter our vodka, which means we have carbon plates. And the point of our vodka is really um, to take as much of the impurities and and some of that is flavor out of it. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, all I'm trying to create is a really clean vodka because I don't believe a lot of people are drinking straight vodka. They come in, they uh, vodka is a mixing drink. It's for martinis, it's for vodka sodas, it's for gimlets, it's for things of that nature. Um, and so I'm trying to produce a really clean vodka. The same with my gin. I want a clean base spirit so that I can then add the botanicals to it um, and really emphasize those botanicals and the flavor of it. So how long are we talking in this process? Well, it's, it's interesting because we make, we make four spirits. We make vodka, gin, uh, bourbon, and rye whiskey. The vodka and the gin take us about nine days from start okay. to finish. Um, and that's from cooking the grain to bottling. The... the Bourbon and the rye whiskey take years. Really? Yeah. So <laughs> it's a big difference. Yeah, that's that's crazy. Yeah. Um, I was interested to see you use all the same vats, right, for for each uh, different – for the vodka, for the, the whiskey, they all go through the same vats. Is that right? We we have one what's called a mash tun, which is just essentially a large pot of water which we cook in. So we cook everything in that. And what we, what we do is we do it by weeks. So one week is – Vodka week. One week is gin week. Okay. Um, we use 100% wheat for our vodka and gin. That's a little bit, to me, more traditional. It's more European. A lot of people in America use corn, right? That's very very popular, like Tito's and such. It's very clean. Mm-hmm. I think there's a little bit more body um, to the wheat, and, uh, and I like it as a base for the gin. Uh, but we do. We use one mash tun. And then we ferment everything in fermenters, and then we bring it back and we distill it. So how, if you're saying, you know, the whiskey, the rye whiskey, the bourbon, they take years, how are you producing it for um, a place that's, you know, opened two months ago right. and, and you didn't start years ago? Right, that's right. So um, we started stocking away our own bourbon and rye in December, and... Um, I went out and I sourced bourbon and rye from a distillery I really liked in Minnesota. Okay. I went around and I looked and I tasted and I acquired some barrels. And so right now we're just doing a blend for our bourbons and our rye. 
and 80% of that is three and a half year old bourbon and rye, and then 20% is um, stuff that we've made and we're blending and producing. Okay. So the point, again, going back to my original statement, is to phase that out once our stuff is made and ready to go, and then we will have what's called straight, which has to be at least two years, bourbon and rye. And right now we are just producing and producing and producing and and storing it away in the big yeah. room. Right? Okay, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, so I'll give you a chance now. Give a little shout out to Ezra Cox if you'd like. Um, tell me about his importance in this process. Oh, he's fantastic. Uh, he's he's one of the rare finds, especially in Texas, that has both distilling and brewing experience. You know, he had a distillery in Washington. Then he was lead brewer at. Um, Revolver. He's been at Bishop Cider and then most recently Legal Draft. And um, there's no way I could have done any of this without him. Uh, but he brings that unique uh, brewing um, skill to the table. Uh, because essentially mashing and cooking the grain and then fermenting is what breweries do. And then the next step for us is distilling and clarifying and filtering and purifying and and barreling so um he's fantastic cool well i just wanted to give you the chance there to, to give a little shout out um your grains also maybe this will be a second shout out here but your grains they come exclusively uh from tex malt is that correct yes right yeah. now we use tex malt uh, for all of our grains that's a north they're here in fort worth in the ob macaroni building um, and they essentially are a source they're a sourcer they go out to all farms in North Texas and acquire the grain, and then they do quality control and inspect it, and then they just bring it to us as we ask for it for our different mashes, which are recipes, okay, um, in whatever bulk we want. And why do you, why was it important to you to have a relationship with one single company as opposed to maybe a couple different companies and, and try to bring that price point down? Well, honestly, it's just easier for me than, <laughs> than to okay. go to farm to farm to farm to farm, right? Yeah. And also, they have the relationships with the farmers, so they know exactly how much quantity they're getting in. They source other distilleries, so I don't have to worry about the farmer giving half of his crop to someone else and half the crop. They're always... Um, they've got control over the supply side so that's great though the importance to me really was i just wanted all all i care about is consistency so as long as i'm getting it from the same place and they're getting it from the same farmers then ultimately my product should taste the same down the road that's that's all i ever worry about is Mm -hmm. what barrels am i using what water am i using what enzymes are i using what grain am i using because all of that affects the final flavor and I just want to make sure not only are we creating a quality product, but that it is consistent and so that everyone knows every time they drink something, oh, yeah, that's Blackland. Okay. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, you're a certified sommelier. How does that palate transfer then to spirits? <laughs> um well, we taste a lot, a lot in the barrel and <laughs> in the back. It's really one thing I've learned as I've gotten into this is it's amazing how much the spirits will change from week to week in a barrel. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, and so there have been times I've tasted that um, I was really worried about the spirit, and then I'll come back a week later and it's changed and it's right on track. 
Really where it's helped me the most though is um, to determine if, if we've cooked the grain correctly in the first place. Uh, did we overcook it? Was it scorched a little bit? Did it have a burn on it? And are we going to throw this wash away because of it? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's really where my palate comes in. And then, of course, in the tasting room on all of our drinks. So you have a light food element included in the bar through a, a partnership with Meyer and Sage. How did that come about? And why did you think it was important to have uh, that kind of food pairing there? Well, <laughs> I... I had so much on my plate that I knew that I didn't want to build a kitchen in the tasting room. That was just another element. Um, And then we got very lucky to have Meyer and Sage and Callie, who used to be an instructor here, uh, who owns that operation with her husband, Alan. Uh, And I had known about Callie and um, her food for a long time, and she's great, and her food's amazing. And so it just made sense to bring that in. And uh, of course, people love everything they do. We do charcuterie, hummus, olives. It's what I call light grazing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just want people, especially when you're drinking distilled spirits, to have something to eat and snack on while they're in the bar. And also, most of the stuff serves as a palate cleanser, too, when you're in there, so that you can really, it accompanies um, our bar program really well. And would you say that you're putting drinks specifically on the menu that pair with the food, or are you ordering the food specifically to pair with your drinks? Um, I don't know that the, the food is what, what I consider pretty neutral in terms of it's flavorful, but, you know, it's uh, charcuterie, it's cheese, it's nuts, it's olives, it's, it's going to go well with all of... Um, all of the flavors we have in our drinks we have we incorporate like a 10 drink cocktail menu to emphasize our spirits and you know just like you do in in culinary school there's sweet and there's sour and there's bitter and we're trying to create as much balance as we can and i think the food only complements that and i'm glad you brought up the menu because i wanted to ask you I, I do love the combos on your menu. You've got your signature cocktails, your bartenders, they mix a great drink. Um, and uh, yeah, so shout, shout out to them. <laughs> yeah, they're great. <laughs> uh, but with only 10 options on the menu, how do you narrow down those, um, the, the ones you want on there? And how did you kind of balance out between the classics, like a, an old fashioned and, and the more creative type drinks? Like I'm gonna give it a shout out the bourbon mcbourbon phase well (laughs) yes yes thank you jeremy uh that's my bar manager's creation what the menu always changes we are always changing the menu and a lot of it is based on public reaction and what people um like and don't like and it's also seasonally based to see what produce is in um is in season we make all of our syrups uh and all of our juices Um, the day of and uh, when we don't use it we throw it away the next day and we start over Mm -hmm. Um, and so uh, we we do have the classics to your point you know we have the old-fashioned you can do a tasting and you can always ask for uh, a a standard drink Uh, but we're just really trying to highlight the spirits and trying to highlight uh, the freshness of whatever is out there right now yeah which and, and it really does come across. Um, would you say that you have your staff kind of help with the menu creation, or is that mostly on your end? 
Uh, no, I, I I think my bar manager, and I'll give uh, a shout out to him, <laughs> uh, Jeremy. Uh, he's been fantastic. He ran a few bars in Houston. He knows exactly what he's doing. He has a vision. Uh, I agree with 90% of it. <laughs> and then uh, one of the best parts about being an owner is the constant cocktail creation and then Jeremy coming back and bringing me drinks and saying, what do you think about this? And is there too much spice, not enough spice? Too, is it too sweet or, mm-hmm. or have that? So I, I really enjoy uh, collaborating with him and in these cocktails. And uh, But I defer a lot to him, and uh, he's created a... a, a they really what I think is a spectacular uh, bar program and menu. And, um, yeah, I, again, like Ezra, I, I would not be here without him. Sounds like a pretty sweet gig for you to, to constantly <laughs> be getting to taste cocktails. <laughs> Do you have a favorite one on the menu? What would you recommend to someone going well, in for the first time? Well, I say this all the time. I, I think the grapefruit punch is cheating because uh, while it takes a long time to make because we do a grapefruit syrup that uh, – takes us about 24 hours to extract the uh, grapefruit juice from the peel. At the end of the day, it's grapefruit, it's grapefruit sugar, and it's vodka, and (laughs) people drink it, and then they want another, and then they want another. (laughs) This sounds pretty good. (laughs) I'm going to have to swing by later in the week. (laughs) Um, So you you had mentioned this before, that uh, the aesthetic of the bar, it was not going to be a college bar. There's a lot of college bars here in Fort Worth. Uh, that's not really what you're going for. You're going for something a little more sophisticated. Why Why did you want to go with that approach? Uh, I wanted something that was maybe for a little bit older, more sophisticated audience so that people could have a place to come and have a drink before or after dinner and maybe um, get away from the masses. You know, I see those Bud Light commercials and... and they are great for them great marketing it's for the many not the few Mm -hmm. i think we're sort of the opposite of that Hmm. and i will tell you right now my bar is not for everyone uh and i'm absolutely fine with that i don't want to sleep over that at all you know we have a long set of rules that people sometimes come in and they don't like Uh, but the point of that is to create an atmosphere and to create an intimate experience um because i don't think we have a lot of places like that in fort worth have you had to tell people, you know, maybe leave or quiet down or something if, if they're not really following the rules? Absolutely. Uh, we've only had to kick three people out. And then, um, you know, usually if there's a rule that's broken, for instance, we don't allow cell phone. We don't allow people to talk on the cell phone mm-hmm. in the bar. So Which we'll, I love. Yeah, and it's great. And most people, without us even telling them, will get up and go outside. And everyone notices it, and everyone loves it. Uh, what we do is typically we'll just point to whatever rule is being violated while they're drinking, <laughs> and then they'll look like, what are you doing? And then they'll realize it. And then that's usually 90% of the time the easiest way. Um, uh, but then there are some people who, who will come out and say, I think these rules are ridiculous, or I don't like this, or I don't like that I can't use my cell phone. I don't like that there's um, no dogs allowed on the patio. and and my response is always, I, I completely understand, uh, you know, and there are there a are hundred other bars where you can do this in Fort Worth, and mm-hmm. it's just not in our place. Yeah, and, yeah. and I respect that, I think. And <laughs> I'm sure people might be mad at the time, but I'm, I'm sure they kind of respect it as well because 
uh, you're you're going for a certain vibe, and and once you start making um, you know concessions for different people, then it it goes away from that vibe. What are some of the intentional interior design type moves that you made uh, to to get that feel that you were looking for? Well, I think when you noticed it's pretty dark, mm-hmm. uh, not not but we have a lot of lighting. We have a lot of soft lighting. Uh, so that was important to me to create that warmth and intimacy. Uh, the seating is structured in a way so that there's something for everyone. We have a bar high booth along the wall so that you're at the same height as the patrons around our giant horseshoe bar. Um, the, we have a booth, three intimate booths for people, um, and that is elevated so that those uh, patrons are at the same height as the, as the bar level. And then we have what I call a lounge area, which is a lower level, uh, but uh, and the, the ceiling is dropped there, again, uh, for a little bit larger groups, but to still have that a feel that looks into the distillery. So I'm trying to create, and then of course we have a large patio outside. Um, so I tried to create a lot of different spaces depending on what you're in the mood for and who you're with, even in that overall um, setting. And, and it is cool, and I encourage people to, to go out and check it out, but it's cool that you have what really amounts to a pretty small space, and you've created three unique areas or four unique areas in that space. Um, I also heard, I got a little tip, um, that the wood behind the bar is, is a special type of wood that, that you had brought in. Uh, is that correct? Yeah. So we brought, <laughs> we, we brought this, uh, what's called Sugibon wood from Japan. It's charred wood. Uh, we did that just because the name of... Uh, the distillery, Blackland Distillery, comes from the Blackland Prairie, uh, which is the eco-region we're here in, in Fort Worth. It runs just north of Fort Worth down to San Antonio. And the story behind that was just that um, hundreds of years ago there were frequent wildfires that charred the land that made it uh, the soil black and gray. And so I really like that element in terms of because the barrels are charred and that's how you essentially make uh, whiskey. And so... Uh, I wanted to incorporate that charred wood uh, into the bar. It's a small detail, but it's the little details like that that I really think matter. Most people don't notice it. I'm glad you did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and I I think the the neat thing to me about this place, and it might be true of, of some other places as well, but um, the thing that kind of stood out to me is that you did put all this time and effort not only into learning the distilling process, but into the actual interior design, into the patio design. Even the outside of the bar, you don't have big signs around. You just, you kind of walk in. Well, the first time I went, or, or yeah, I've, I've only been one time. <laughs> but uh, when I went, um, when I when I opened the door, I was like, am I in the right spot? Because you don't even really notice it on the, on the wall and stuff. And it, it almost makes it feel kind of exclusive, which which is pretty neat. So yeah, I just, I just want to, you know, maybe this is just compliment time, but for me to say, I, you know, I appreciate all all the time and effort you put into it. I appreciate that, and you're not the only one that says that it's they can't find the door, and I I kind of like that too. I don't want to be a speakeasy where it's hidden, but I, I like to think of it as once you do um, find the door and you come in that. It, I, I watch everyone, and it takes them a good 30 seconds, if not longer, to really understand where what's inside and where they are, and then there's sort of a, a realization. You can see it on their face of, oh, wow, this is great. And I, th- I think it's sort of almost a reward of, okay, I found it. Now I'm inside, and 
and now I'm going to have a really good drink yeah. and, and, and a really good experience. That's what I hope. Yeah, I, I think yeah. That's, that's spot on. Uh, you, you brought this up before, and we'll start to wind it down here, but yeah. uh, you brought this up before that there's you're now the fifth or sixth distillery here in Fort Worth, and uh, it's starting to become a popular thing, popping up around. Do you worry at all about that competition? No, no, not at all. Uh, I think we're way behind in the distillery world right because when i when i came to culinary school it was at sort of the tail end of what i thought was this culinary craze where chefs had sort of been elevated to celebrities right and then i we saw this phase of uh, breweries were popping up everywhere and they're still popping up everywhere and i think finally the distilleries are catching up uh, but if you make a quality product, then people are going to come and they're going to buy it, especially in Fort Worth is so supportive, too, of uh, local um, businesses. But, you know, I mean, there are a thousand wineries in California mm-hmm. at the end of the day, and a lot of them are doing really, really well just based on if they're producing a good product. Yeah, I think that's actually a really good point. I've never thought about that in <laughs> California. Um, are you guys uh, in distribution at all yet, or can you only buy at the bar? Right now you can buy at the bar, and we just signed a distributor contract okay. that um, I don't want to talk about right here. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Not to sound too lawyerly, but yes, you will be able to buy us this summer in liquor stores and then hopefully restaurants and bars. Okay, so, yeah, awesome. It's very exciting. Something to look forward to <laughs> yes, there. Yes. And uh, we'll um, we'll re-release the podcast when, it, Good. when that all comes out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so let's just wrap up uh, by, I'll give you a second to let everyone know, first, where they can find you exactly and, and where they can find out about you online. Okay, so uh, we are located at 2616 Weisenberger, which... Nobody knows where that is. <laughs> Some people say, oh, you're in the foundry. I don't think really anyone knows where that is either. I tell them we are behind the Target in Montgomery Plaza, mm-hmm. <laughs> one yep. street behind next to Doc's Records. Um, and we're open. The tasting room is open Wednesday through Sunday, uh, usually 4 o'clock on the weekdays, 2 o'clock we open on the weekends. You can find us on our website at blacklandfw.com. And uh, we have Instagram and Facebook pages and all of that where easily you can search us on the web. But uh, once you find us, then you'll always remember and and, uh, you'll always come back. (laughs) Yep, absolutely. (laughs) Well, Marcus, thank you so much for coming on. I I really enjoyed talking to you and I appreciate you uh, taking the time to tell us about the the distillery. Thanks for having me. This was great. And uh, I'll just say it one more time, as I said earlier. Uh, Culinary School of Fort Worth was great, and everyone should attend. (laughs) That interview with Marcus Kiprios was brought to you by the Culinary School of Fort Worth. Located on Campoe Boulevard, the Culinary School of Fort Worth is helping future chefs pursue their dreams every single day. You can reach out for more information or to schedule a tour on their website at csftw.edu, or you can reach them by phone at 817-737-8427. Also, you can check them out on social media to see what's going on daily at the school at Culinary School of Fort Worth on Facebook and Culinary School FTW on Instagram.